Shot 8 of The Right Way to Do Wrong, an Exposé of Successful Criminals. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leanne Howlett. The Right Way to Do Wrong, an Exposé of Successful Criminals, by Harry Houdini. Shot 8. Beggars and Deadbeats. There probably is not a reader of this book who has not frequently been accosted on the street corners by the poorly dressed, shivering wretch who asks in a whining voice for a coin or two to get him a night's lodging. Who has not experienced the mingled feeling of repugnance and pity which their stories are intended to produce? Who has not, rather than run the chance of turning away an honest man in real distress, put his hand in his pocket and dropped a dime or a quarter into grimy, outstretched fingers, and went on his way more than half convinced that he had paid money to a fraud. Beggars there have been since civilization created the distinctions of wealth and poverty, and must needs be till a higher, better civilization makes misery and crime impossible or unnecessary. For ages the mendicant has flourished, plying his vocation on the credulous and making profit out of the fact that humanity and religion make almsgiving a virtue. In the Middle Ages, beggars became so numerous that they threatened to overrun the continent. The begging friars and other religious orders encouraged it, and the beggars throve. Today the modern law in most lands forbids begging, but still most people would be surprised to know to what extent it is practiced, that is, to what lengths and in what numbers the fraudulent cheating professional beggar preys upon the almsgiving over-credulous public. I have watched the beggars of most of the great cities of America and Europe, and have made some little investigation into their methods, and I do not hesitate to say that in ninety cases out of a hundred, the man who asks for alms on the street corner is a cheat and a fraud. If the public would take my advice and absolutely refrain from giving to beggars, this nuisance might soon be done away with. If the beggar no longer found his calling profitable, he would soon go to work or seek other fields of activity. As a rule, the beggars we see upon our streets belong to well-organized gangs, and their individual members are controlled by a chief whose word is law. For simple begging the territory is laid out, and each man keeps within his own beat. At night they assemble at some cheap lodging house, where each one turns over his day's takings to the leader, who acts as treasurer and even often deposits a fund in the bank to be used in emergencies or for bail money. A certain portion of the income for the day is divided each night among all members, either equally or in certain shares agreed upon. It is said that a leader or treasurer is always faithful to his trust, for if he were to appropriate the money, he would at once be barred out of the United Order of American Beggars, or Sons of Rest, and blacklisted all over the country. Sometimes the leaders will take in young boys and train them in the art of deceiving the public. Chief Watts tells one such story of a young man known as Kid Johnson, an orphan boy who came under the influence of Frisco's Slim, the burly leader of a gang of Boston beggars. This wily mendicant filled the lad's mind with stories about easy money, and showed him how he, Frisco Slim, had doctored his arm with a chemical to give it the appearance of a frightful burn. With that arm, said Frisco, I collar many a dollar every day of my life. I'll fix your arm in another style that'll catch on great. 
So the mere boy was enrolled as Kid Johnson, and taken to a resort known to the gang, where his arm was put in a plaster cast, and he was sent out to beg on the street. His scanty clothing was thin and ragged, his toes peeped through his shoes, and he looked the picture of weariness and hunger. In a short time, the kid proved one of the best money-getters of the whole gang. But his master's demands grew faster than his ability to bring in the coin. He was required to bring in a certain amount each day, and ill-treated if it fell short. His life was that of a slave. He was finally rescued by the police and given a chance to reform and lead an honest life. But the taint of crime had entered his nature, and he soon ran away to take to the road and street again. THE MAGIC CAP A German organist who came to St. Petersburg from Orenburg on a visit to his relatives met with an adventure which caused him to wonder whether he had by accident been transported into the mystic East and carried back to the times of the Arabian Nights. The story of his adventure might well be entitled The Magic Cap, and it will be seen that it bears a strong resemblance to the story of Aladdin and His Wonderful Lamp. On arriving at St. Petersburg, the German visitor purchased a cap, which he thought would be more comfortable than his ordinary headgear for exploring the town with which he was not well acquainted. On arriving home in the evening after his first day's sightseeing, he was greatly surprised to find in the pockets of his overcoat two purses, one of them containing over ten pounds. He marveled greatly at his mysterious luck and sallied out again next day. When he came home again, he found in his pockets several more purses, and began to feel alarmed. When on the third day he came home with another windfall in his pockets, he became frightened. But his Teutonic common sense would not allow him to believe in the existence of magic, and he decided to have recourse to the prosaic police force in order to elucidate the mystery. Accordingly, he sought out the chief of police and told him all the facts. The astute official examined him closely as to the clothes he was wearing, and particularly as to the cap he had bought in St. Petersburg, and on receiving his replies sent the German with a policeman to the hatter's shop. The shopkeeper explained that the cap was of an exceptional kind. Some time ago a man had called on him and given him a large piece of English cloth, out of which he was to make fifteen caps of exact similarity. On concluding this order, the hatter found that he had a piece of the cloth left over, and of this he made an extra cap, the identical one which was sold to the German. On the strength of this information, the chief of police arranged for a detective to accompany the German on his next day's sightseeing, and then the mystery of the magic cap was fully cleared up. Watching his charge carefully, the detective saw various men lounge furtively up to the German and transfer something from their hands to his pockets. On each occasion the man thus discovered was arrested, and in the course of two or three days, during which the same plan was pursued, the police made prisoners of about a dozen men. They turned out to be a gang of pickpockets, and all wore a cap of the same pattern as that purchased by the German. Their plan was to pass on their plunder to a confederate, for whom the German had been mistaken. A very favorite trick of begging letter-writers is to try to obtain money on behalf of some bogus society in which they think the celebrity written to might be interested. The swindler will even go so far as to get the name of a fictitious institution printed on a number of letters, and writing as a secretary, ask for a subscription. Probably in nine cases out of ten, this will be sent without any further inquiries being made by the recipient of the request the printed letter paper being considered a sufficient guarantee as to the genuineness of the appeal. Often professional beggars are actually men of wealth. 
Not long ago a beggar died in New York who had eleven bank books concealed about his person, with deposits amounting to thousands of dollars. Beggars frequently own real estate, stocks, and bonds. This is putting a beggar on horseback with a vengeance. An actual incident of this kind was disclosed in one of our largest cities not long ago. In a smart little villa in one of the suburbs lived an equally smart young married couple. Mr. Cecil Brown Smith was the name on the door plate, and every morning Mr. Smith went into the city, and every evening came home. If a neighbor asked about business, he would reply, Oh, pretty good, I can't complain. So the pretty little wife was happy from morning till night, and all went well. In the city, shuffling painfully along one of the principal streets, a miserable object had for some time touched the hearts and pockets of stockbrokers and city men. Even the poor, almost beggars themselves, have dropped their mite into the cigar-box full of matches which he carried in his one hand, for he was an object of such abject misery. One arm hung helpless by his side, his head hung with the weakness of paralysis. His right leg was paralyzed, and he laboriously dragged it after him. No one on earth would have supposed a connection between the crippled match-seller, always so grateful for alms, and the snug suburban home. But for some reason two disguised detectives for some hours took a close interest in the beggar's business. When the match-vendor's day's work was over, one of the detectives followed him and witnessed an astonishing transformation. First, said the detective, the lame man dragged himself to an adjacent tobacconist's shop, where he changed his silver and coppers into bills. Here, too, he left the cigar-box and the matches until the morrow, and then he boarded a car to a cheap lodging-house, and by the time he had arrived there his lameness had disappeared, and he went up the steps two at a time. Finally, he went home to the smart little villa already described. He was a gentleman who lived there with his wife and child. One afternoon, as the match-peddler was shuffling painfully along with a cigar-box as before, Detective Number One suddenly confronted him. "'You're an impostor," said the detective. "'Can you prove it?' demanded the beggar. The officer said he could, and at once arrested him for begging. As the prisoner declared he could not walk, and objected to the publicity of an ambulance, he was conveyed to the police station in a cab. In the dock at the police station he presented the appearance of an intelligent and fairly well-dressed man of twenty-nine. One of the most amazing features of the case was a statement that Smith's wife was surprised to hear of her husband's goings-on. She knew nothing about Smith's occupation in the city. Begging cards, covered with the worst kind of doggerel poetry, are often used by beggars. Who has not at one time or another received one like the following entitled, The Cripple's Appeal? Kind people, do not fear me, or turn me from your door. I ask you but to hear me, or read my story or... "'Tis the same old tale of hardship, misfortune, and of woe, "'that others have told before me, and you've heard it all, I know. "'From house to house in the city this little appeal I've made, "'and it's with a hope for pity that I ask you for your aid.'" Did you ever give a nickel or a dime to the person who handed you such a card? If you did, you gave to an out-and-out -out professional beggar. Indeed, nine times out of ten, yes, Ninety-nine times out of one hundred, every coin that goes into the tin cup or the hand of a street beggar goes to a fraud of the worst description. Visitor at the Gaul Poor, poor man, may I offer you this bunch of flowers? Man behind the bars You've made a mistake, miss. 
The feller that killed his wife and children is in the next cell. I'm year for stealing a cow. It would be helpful to you, said the prison visitor, if you could take some motto and try and live up to it. That's right, replied the convict. I'd like to select, for instance, we are here today and gone tomorrow. End of shot eight. Recording by Leanne Howlett.